The last three weeks, uh, we've been looking at three questions. Can we trust the Bible to always lead to God? And can there be joy in the junk and hope in the hurt? Here's today's question. Is there a heaven and a hell? We've been saving the easy question for today. No, all of these are hard questions, right? All of these are hard questions, but they're real questions. They're, they're, they're questions that, that must have our attention. They're, they're questions that, that deserve our attention. But the question for today of heaven and hell, this is a question we don't like to talk about. This is a question we, we don't like to think about. If we're honest with, our, with ourselves, I mean, death and, and judgment and, and afterlife, this is uncomfortable. I mean, the very thought of eternity is just, it's just overwhelming. I mean, nobody wants to get this wrong. There's a huge weight behind this. But there's no way to really know. There's no way to really 100% know what will happen until we die. It's too late. So we block it out. We, we ignore it. We, we distract ourselves with other things. A lot of things that just don't even matter. We, we numb ourselves to eternity. But friends, this is the reality. Imagine, imagine that this, this rope is eternity. It's, it's 100 feet, it's a, it's a 100 feet rope. And, and just imagine with me this, this is eternity. But, but here, you see this, the, the very end, it's, it's black tape. I've, I've got a one inch of black tape. Now imagine this, this one inch of black tape represents my life. However long I live, however long I, I can step foot here on this planet, this is it. One inch of black tape but imagine this isn't just a, a hundred foot rope, that this rope just continues, that, that it goes into eternity, that extends forever and ever and ever, and yet we're still limited to, to one inch of black tape. This is a question that matters. This is a question that has a, a whole lot of life still yet to be lived, a whole lot of life that's ahead of us. This is a question that, that deserves our attention. This is a series on, on apologetics and, and answering life's questions, and yet scripture, scripture is unapologetic in how it speaks about heaven and hell. Is there a heaven and hell? The Bible says yes, and the Bible is not afraid to talk about it. The Bible is not afraid to address it head on, and so neither should we. This is a series on equipping. And so today I want to, I want to equip you. I, I want to challenge you. I, I want for, first for, for you to think through this topic yourself. You have to wrestle through this. There's gonna be some parts this morning that are uncomfortable, but we can't be afraid. We can't avoid it. We can't block it out. We, we have to address it. But I want to address it this morning in a way that's, that's conversational, that, that you could take the same question, is there a heaven and a hell? and have the same conversation with someone else. So first, this is for you, but I wanna do so in a way that you can take this conversation beyond our walls. Take this out and have this. We're gonna look at five passages, one on eternity, one on accountability, one on heaven, one on hell, and we're gonna end with a passage about a door. 
Turn to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you open your Bible, almost in the halfway, you'll find uh, Psalms, go to the right, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. This is written by Solomon. He's the son of David. He's the king, the, the ruler of, of Israel. And the Bible says that Solomon is the wisest man ever. So it doesn't make sense for us to, to start with, with the wisest man ever and his thoughts about eternity according to scripture. This is written 900 years before Jesus. Solomon is the king. He's wise. He's wealthy. Solomon had everything. He, he had everything, but he had a problem. He was searching to discover what is the meaning of life? What's the purpose? Why are we here? What is this all about? What do we gain? What do we get? See, this, this question of the meaning of life, this isn't a new postmodern question. This is a question that man has been wrestling with for over 3,000 years. What's the point? Why are we here? Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. For, for, for everything... Not, not some things, not a few things, but for everything there is a season and a time for every, not, not some matters, not a few matters, but, but a time for every matter under heaven. Verse two, a, a time to be born and a time to die. Solomon here lays out a, a pattern. That there's, a, there's a time to be born and, and a time to die. But, but this implies, this includes also everything that happens in between. It's not just these two extremes. He goes on, there's, there's a time to, to plant and be planted, a kill and heal, break down and build up, weep and laugh, mourn and dance, cast away and gather. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain, seek and loose, keep and cast away, tear and sow, Silent and speak, love and hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Solomon is doing two things. He's, he is first showing us that life is complex, isn't it? That, that life is not linear. Life doesn't happen in a straight line. We're, we're not just machines. We, we are not just, we, we are born and then we die. We're not machines grinding through life. There, there are ups, there are downs, there are twists, there are turns. There, there is a complexity of life. That life is, life is not just linear in a straight line. Life is more like this. It's knotted. There's tangles. I mean, it's, at least my life, it's, it's messy. But life is complex. Solomon is also showing us that there's a whole lot more to life than what we see. We, we might just be scratching the surface of, of eternity and just seeing this, this one inch of black tape, but Solomon is showing us there's, there's a whole lot more than what we see. Look at verse nine. What gain has the worker from his toil? What, what gain, right? Going back to the question, what's the purpose? Why are we here? What, what do we gain from life? What do we get out of life? This is the question Solomon's answering. Look at verses 10 and 11. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's saying, I, I see it. I, I see what, what God is up to, that the God's business, his job. I see what the God is, is up to and what he is giving us as man to be, to be busy with in the complexity of life. Verse 11, he, he has made everything beautiful in its time. That's an interesting statement. Because Solomon has just laid out war killing, weeping, breaking, dying, losing, tearing. How, how can this be beautiful? How can these things be beautiful? 
He has made everything beautiful. Keep going, verse 11, it says also, like, 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 like remember, like, don't forget, he has put eternity into man's heart. That's it. See, that's the answer. We, we, are, we are born and we die. And everything that happens in between, all of verses one through eight, what do we get out of this? What do we, what do we take away from this? What's the purpose? It prepares us for eternity. See, that God has placed eternity in our heart. God uses the ups and the downs. He uses everything, every season, every matter. He uses everything, the seasons, the stages, all of life. This is why he says it can be beautiful. Because he's using everything in this life to prepare you for the next life. See, if I, if, if I want to talk to somebody about heaven and hell, this is the question I want to start with. Why are we here? What, what do you think life is all about? See, I'm, I'm not jumping to uh, streets of, of gold and pearly gates or fire and flames and hell. Like, that's ending the conversation real fast. I'm, I'm trying to engage in the conversation. Why are we here? What, what's the purpose of this? And the answer, that every knot and tangle The the, the complexity, the busyness, the chaos of life, the purpose, the reason this is pointing us to is is it's preparing us for eternity. That that God has placed eternity in our heart. And so we we must acknowledge there's something. At the end of our our one inch of, of black tape, as death gets our attention, there's something. There's something else. Our, our heart tells us that there is a longing within us, that there, there must be a reason, there must be a, a purpose behind all of this. That's the only possible way that everything can be beautiful, that it's pointing to something else. That God has placed eternity in our heart, that this is our purpose, and this, this points us to something. And, and friends, this is hope. This is hope, right? And when it comes to the question of, of eternity and and life after death, and and judgment. When it comes to these questions, we start with hope. That God has placed eternity in our heart. And there's a longing within us. That there is something more to life than this one inch. There's hope. And we have to start with hope, because next, the day of judgment is coming. And that we're, we're going to move from, from the heart where we're now going to appeal to the conscience, right, to the mind. We're going to stir up convictions, and, and this is still based in Scripture, but we're, we're moving from the heart and the longings, the desires, the purpose to, to the convictions. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. Uh, the Bible says that, that God will hold every person accountable. He will judge you. He will judge me. He will separate us. He will send us to our eternal destiny. Matthew 25. Let's get some context for Matthew 25. If you look forward in chapter 26, uh, you can see that Jesus is saying these things to his disciples. He's teaching his disciples. Uh, Chapter 26, verse 2. You you know that in two days, uh, that after two days, the Passover is coming. Jesus is telling his disciples, in two days is the Passover And the Son of Man, that Jesus, will be delivered up to be crucified. That in two days, disciples, I will be nailed 
to the cross on Passover. The history of, of the Passover, it, it goes back to the Old Testament in, in Exodus, where, where God raised up the prophet Moses, and, and Moses is speaking to, to all of, of Egypt. He's, he's confronting Pharaoh, and through a series of, of plagues and judgments, here at the very last plague, there's a warning that God's judgment is coming, that unless you, you sacrifice a lamb and, and paint the, the doorframe of your house with the blood of this, this lamb, that God's judgment, your, your firstborn son, will die. But if you, if you sacrifice a lamb, if you, if you paint the doorframe of your, of your home with, with its blood, that, that God's judgment, the angel of the Lord, will, will pass over, he will pass over your home. Jump to the New Testament, that Jesus is the firstborn son, that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, that, that on the day of Passover, Jesus' blood is poured out and spilled for whoever believes in him, God's judgment will pass over you and you will be spared. Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25, Jesus is speaking with his disciples and he's, and he's telling them in two days on Passover, I will be nailed to a cross, I will die. Here in chapter 24, 25, he's, he's telling them, but I'm gonna come back that I, I will return. And he's telling them that, that Jesus will come on, on the clouds and in power and in glory with his angels and, and nobody knows the time. Not the angels, not even Jesus. Only God the Father knows the time. And so he tells the disciples, be alert, stay awake, be ready. He, he, is, he is telling his disciples, he is telling us, don't block this out. Don't, don't avoid this. Don't, don't, don't just pretend and, and stop thinking about this. Be ready. Be alert. Chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of, of Man, this, this is a title for Jesus, it goes back to Daniel chapter 7 and the prophecy that, that the judge will come, the king will come to judge the nations. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, and then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations. The word nations, uh, the word is ethne. This is where we get the word ethnicities, that, that before him, people from every ethnicity, every tribe, language, culture, background, people from every country, every continent, that every person will uh, file in line, that God will gather all people, all ethnicities, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. That Jesus is described here as, as a shepherd. And if Jesus is a shepherd, he, he knows the difference between sheep and goats. In, in this moment of, of separating, he's not guessing. He, he clearly knows. John chapter 10, Jesus is described as, as a good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Can you picture this moment? 
Jesus riding in on the clouds with the angels, full of glory. He sits on his throne with authority. Every person on the planet is now filing, single file in line, lining up, and he is a shepherd to the right, to the left, sheep and goats. There is a day of judgment that is coming. Look at verse 34. And the king will say to to those on his right, the sheep, come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or or thirsty and give you drink? And and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and and in prison and and visit you? And, And the king will answer them truly. I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. See, the point in in this is is that we are accountable. There will be a day of judgment that is coming, and we are accountable. You, me, every person, every ethne, every ethnicity, all of us, that we will stand and give an account of our life and how we live with this one inch of black tape. How we live will have an eternal consequence, will carry in and echo into eternity. Verses 41, and, and he will say to those on his, his left, the, the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And they will answer him saying, Lord, what, 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 when, did we, when did we see you hungry or, or thirsty or, or a stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister to you? And, and he will answer them saying, truly I say, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Imagine you're talking with someone. You start with a question of, why are we here? What, what's the meaning of, of life? I, what, what do we get out of all of this? Ecclesiastes 3 makes it clear that, that the complexity of, of life, the, the knots, the tangles, all of this, the ups and the downs, it, it points us to something. It, there's a hope, there's, there's something in our heart that's longing the world is broken and we know it. This is not our home. And so it's, it's pointing to something more and, and there's a future event. Matthew 25, there's a future event where we will stand and give an account to the Lord for our lives. Everyone is accountable. Right, left. Sheep, goats. Which are you? This morning is is meant to be uncomfortable. Verse 46 ends with, with two options. Eternal punishment 
eternal life. If, if I stopped here and if this is all that we knew about heaven and hell, one leads to eternal punishment, the other to eternal life, do you know where you're going? See, the Bible has answers. That we can be certain, that we can have confidence, that we can have not just a conviction, but, but clarity of, of what will happen, that you can know where you will spend eternity. It's not a guess. We don't have to be afraid of, of accountability, that we don't have to be afraid in this, this moment of judgment. That even right now, Everything can be beautiful. The hope that in the complexity of life, that everything is pointing to there's something else, there's something more. But the bad news has to get worse before the good news gets better. Turn to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Recently, I met with, with one of our elders, and uh, we were having lunch at, at Jimmy John's. We talked about how, uh, how people, people in the room, pe- people seven feet away, people making our sandwiches. And we, 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 we could hear their voices. We, we, didn't know, we didn't know these people. But some of these people, that, they could spend eternity in hell. Looking at church history, the, the doctrine of hell was, was actually a major topic that was, was commonly preached. It was something that was on people's minds. Christians talked about it. It was a part of, of, of normal vocabulary, normal conversation. Friends, we've lost this. We, we, we ignore this. We avoid this. It's, it's uncomfortable. And so we pretend that, that judgment and, and afterlife, it, we block it out. And we, we now have a culture today that, that doesn't know what the Bible says. That, that the people around us, that they don't know the warnings of hell. Church, we have to talk about it. We have to preach about it. Start with the definition. Hell is a dark place of eternal punishment. Regrets loneliness, misery, and pain. There is no hope. There's no second chance. When the Bible describes hell, it, it uses graphic and intense language. It's, it uses imagery to, to get our attention, to, to show us that, that hell is worse than we can possibly imagine. The Bible never tries to soften hell. It doesn't avoid it. It doesn't ignore it. It doesn't apologize for it. The reason that these images are so terrifying, it serves as a warning. It's trying to get our attention to do everything that we can possibly do to avoid it. This is meant to be a warning. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse, verse five. This, this is evidence. This, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Just like in Matthew, this is mirroring the same moment of judgment, the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Verse six, since, 
since indeed God considers it just. The first thing that we read here, that, that as God thinks about hell, he thinks about it in a way, he considers it just. To repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Verse six, that that God's judgment is just, meaning that hell is deserved. This is the place where, where God's justice is poured out, where sin is punished, that God repays affliction with affliction to those who deserve it. And it says for, for us as believers, that this should, should actually bring relief to us. That evil does not go unpunished. That God does not turn a blind eye to injustice. That the righteous will be vindicated. The unrighteous will experience eternal punishment. Look at how it's described in verse, verses eight to nine. Inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on who? On who? On those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might that hell is a physical place, a place of destruction and pain. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that the whole body will experience, the whole body will go to hell. The whole person, not not just the soul. This isn't just a a spiritual realm, but but that that bodies will, will physically, emotionally, mentally, relationally, spiritually suffer. In hell, people are are fully conscious, fully aware. 2 Peter 2, 4 says, hell is a place of of chains, of gloomy darkness. That you are locked up in in bondage in darkness. Luke 16, that hell is a place of of torment, anguish. I've I've heard people joke about um, parties in hell or or say the phrase, I'll I'll see you in hell. Like like it's some kind of a lounge where you you hang out and just swap stories. But, But the problem is you won't. You you won't see anyone because hell is a dark pit. It is filled with the the utter blackest darkness. You will be alone. It's a place of crushing isolation and fear. The Bible uses also imagery of of fire and flames and furnace and a lake of fire. And it's it's hard to know if this is is literal flames or or if the author's intent is is to, to convey this warning that hell is fierce. The hell is is total destruction, total devastation, that it is sheer terror. It's the same thing with, with, with the idea of darkness. It's about fear. Jesus describes hell as a place where where life rots away. And the worm just eats and eats and eats and eats and eats and never stops this place of eternal damnation, never-ending destruction, total devastation. Why? 
why would God do this? I have a hard time wrapping my, my mind around the thought of hell let alone a, a billion people alive today who have never even heard the name of Jesus. This is a book that's been helpful for me. It's by Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle. It's called Erasing Hell. What God said about eternity and the things we've made up. Because hell's uncomfortable. Because we can't think about it in our human categories. That it just, it just doesn't make sense. The Bible is bursting with divine acts that, that don't make a lot of sense to us. Think about it. Early on, we, we, uh, early on in the Bible, we read about people have become so evil that God regrets making them. So what does he do? He decides to save some animals and eight of his people, and then he kills the rest. But he doesn't just kill them. He drowns them all with a massive flood. A flood. He drowns everyone. If I were God, I wouldn't have done that. Later on, Moses is up on the mountain while the Israelites are down below worshiping a golden calf. And when Moses comes down, God commands the Levites to wet their swords and run through the camp and slaughter their brothers and their friends and neighbors. 3,000 people died that day and the Levites were blessed for their obedience. Years later, God commands the Israelites to slaughter all the inhabitants of Canaan, men, women, and children, every single one. Even though God is merciful, he, he tells them to take no prisoners, slaughter them all. If I were God, I wouldn't have done that. While the Israelites are conquering the land of Canaan, a, a man named Achan steals some treasures from the town of Jericho. He, he lies about it. But when confronted, he, he confesses his sin and he returns the items. Nevertheless, Achan and his family, including all of his possessions, tent and all, are stoned to death as a result. If I were God, I wouldn't have allowed that, let alone commanded it. The fact is, Scripture is filled with divine actions that don't fit our human standards of logic or morality. But they don't need to, because we're the clay and he is the potter. We need to stop trying to domesticate God or confine him to tidy categories and, and compartments that reflect our human sentiments rather than his inexplicable ways. We serve a God whose ways are incomprehensible, whose thoughts are not like our thoughts. Would you have thought to rescue sinful people from their sins by sending your son to take on human flesh? Would you have thought to enter creation through the womb of, of a young Jewish woman and be born in a feeding trough? Would you have thought to allow your created beings to torture your son, lacerate his flesh with whips and drive nails through his hands and feet? Parents, imagine it. I'm almost sure I would not have done that if I were God. Aren't you glad I'm not God? It's incredibly arrogant to pick and choose which incomprehensible truths we embrace no one wants to ditch God's plan of redemption, even though it doesn't make sense to us. Neither should we erase God's revealed plan of punishment because it doesn't sit well with us. As soon as we do this, we are putting God's actions in submission to our own reasoning, which is a ridiculous thing for the clay to do. 
Romans 9, that God is the potter and that we are the clay. It's not up to us. That we, we can't tell God what to do even, even when we don't understand it. Hell is truly hell. It is worse than you can possibly imagine. But heaven, heaven is the complete and total opposite. Turn to Revelation 21. Revelation 21 is, as you read your Bible, you expect for the story to unfold. You, you expect to find out more the further you go. And so Revelation 21, this is the second to the last chapter in the Bible. And here is a, a vision of, of heaven. The Bible tells us what to expect, tells us what it's like. Chapter 21, verse 1. And, and then I, I saw I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven. The first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Beautiful. It's beautiful. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Behold, that God is, is getting our attention. He is, he is showing us that, that what heaven is like, that, that hell is, is the banishment away from the presence of God. Hell is the dwelling place where God resides with his people, where he is accessible, he is available. That, that God doesn't pour out his wrath in heaven. He, he wipes away tears with his hands. That death is gone, no mourning, no crying, no pain, no punishment. Hell is filled with fear and loneliness. Heaven is a city. It's filled with, with people. There's food, there's feasts, there's relationships, there's community, there's creation. Hell is a lake of fire. Heaven has a river of life. Hell is chaos, confusion, turmoil, agony, regrets, sadness, misery, isolation, and fear. Hell is inactivity. There is no purpose in hell. There is no hope in hell. This is like sitting in solitary confinement in the dark, and yet heaven is the complete and total opposite. There's order. There's worship. There's joy. There's celebration, creativity, there's adventure, there's travel, there's love, there's laughter, there's purpose. Hell is a dark pit. Heaven? Heaven doesn't even need the sun. Doesn't need the moon. Because the radiant glory of Jesus Christ is so bright, it lights up the sky. Hell is like a worm that lives on rotting flesh. Heaven, everything is new. 
There's a new city, a new heaven, a new earth. We are given new bodies where everything is new. It is, it is new. It is returned back to the original purpose. It is, it is recreated and restored back to the original condition, condition where it is no longer broken. It's new. All things are made new. Heaven is the complete and total opposite of hell. This is a, a book. It's a fantastic book. It's, it's, it's big, but it's, it's so worth reading. Uh, the title is, is Heaven. It should be able to, easy to, to find. Uh, the title is Heaven. It's by Randy Alcorn. This is a book. It's, it's not heady. It's, it's accessible, but it will challenge you. It will make you think. This book will inspire you to, to heaven in more ways than you can possibly imagine. This is fun. This is a good book. Turn to Luke. Luke chapter 13. Luke 13. This is our last passage. Luke 13. There's another reason we, we don't like to, to talk or think about heaven and hell. It's, it's, well, we assume we just have time, right? I mean, we, we can take care of this later. I mean, I'm just trying to keep up with the complexity and the busyness of, of life. I, I, don't, I don't have time to, to sit around and, and think about eternity, I mean, it's been more than 2,000 years. Jesus said he's coming back. Clearly, he's, he's not in a hurry. We've got time. This isn't what Jesus says. Luke chapter 13. Jesus says to enter to strive to enter the door of faith because this door will not stay open forever. Verse 22, and he, he went on his way through the towns and the villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And, and someone said to him, Lord, will, will those who are saved be, be few? He said to them, strive. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and, and, begin, you, you, uh, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, uh, oh, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. And then you'll begin to say, we, yeah, yeah, but, 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 but we, 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 we ate and, and we, we drank in and, and your presence and, and, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and the west, north and the south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Jesus says there's a door. What do we know about this door? It's, well, it's a narrow door. It's not a, it's not a big door. It's not a wide door. It's, it's a narrow door. It's, it's a small door. That narrow means you, you have to enter through this door yourself, that, that you can't just be carried through it by someone else, that, that you have to, it's, it's, a, it's a low door, it's a narrow door, a small door. You, you have to, to humble yourself to, to be able to walk through this door. 
Jesus says that there'll be people from the east and the west, the north and the south, people from every ethnic, every ethnicity, people from every language, culture, tribe, region will, will, will pass through this door. But he says this door won't stay open forever. Eventually, it'll be, it'll be shut. When, when the master arises, he will close the door. It'll be locked. This door will not reopen. See, there, there comes a time when it's, when it's too late. What do we know about this door? Jesus says, strive. Strive to enter through the narrow door. I, I love this word, strive. Strive, it's, it's this word that's just soaked in sweat. It's, it's an athletic word. It's, it's the same word as, as wrestling with God in prayer. Same word, striving with God in prayer. Struggling with, with God through prayer. This is, a, this is a word that's about pushing us beyond our comfort zone. That we strive with every ounce, with every fiber in our being, that, that we wrestle with this. Strive is not sit. Strive is not stroll. Strive is, is if, if you are not sure about your eternal destiny to wrestle with this. Eternity, accountability, and judgments, heaven, hell, life after death, this is not supposed to be comfortable. That Jesus intends to push us out of our comfort zone to make us sweat. Striving is not idle. But he says do everything. Do everything you possibly can do to enter through this door. It won't stay open forever. John 10, verse nine, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone, anyone enters by me, enters through me, he will be saved. Saved from the pit of hell. Saved from eternal separation and banishment from God. Safe from never-ending punishment, regret, and pain. Safe from loneliness and destruction, agony and terror. Safe from confusion and chaos and sadness. Safe from fears, safe from tears. Safe from a misery that will never stop. If you're sitting here and you, you are not sure about this, it's okay to have questions. Luke 13, someone asked Jesus the question, how many will be saved? His answer Strive. Strive to enter through the narrow door. It's, it's okay to have knots and tangles in your life. This is all of us. In fact, God uses this for the purpose of pointing us to hope in something more. I don't know your story. I, I don't know maybe the, the guilt or the shame. I don't know the, back, the background that you've, you've come through, but but it doesn't matter because the door is open. This is the door that God's judgment passes over because his son's blood is painted over the door. Strive. It's the way, it's, it's the only way. The door is open. Jesus is the door and everything hinges on him. If you wanna know more about what does it mean to be saved, this is a book, it's called What is the Gospel? We have some, some uh, copies available at the Connection Center on the way. Stop by, pick it up. We have a box and I hope they're out. What is the gospel? What does it mean to be saved? This, this is a book that helps us know how do we respond? What should we do? That we should wrestle with this. 
We should read about this. We should talk about this. That we, we should think about this. That we should ask questions. This is a topic that we want to engage. My goal this morning is, has, has been to challenge you. Don't avoid it. Don't block it out. We must address it. There's a whole lot of life that happens after our one inch of black tape. Jesus is coming back. Are you ready? Let's pray. Jesus, uh, these, these are not um, my words alone. These, these are your words that you call people to yourself, that through your Holy Spirit and the presence, some of that uncomfortable feeling this moment is your spirit stirring in us, that you draw people to yourselves by grace, that through faith that we believe in you. Lord, you say this is a gift. This is not of ourselves. This is not something that, that we can accomplish even though we strive. Oh, we cannot achieve. We cannot do this on our own. It's only through you and your door. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish, but would have eternal life. Lord, as we, as we believe in you, as we have faith in you, Lord, that is the door. Lord, may we walk through that. Lord, may we, we talk about it. That we, we point other people to this door. Lord, that they can experience you in all of your glory. That they can experience eternity, not in separation or isolation, but in, with you. Lord, we long for heaven. Lord, that should change how we live. Lord, it changes who we are. Oh, Lord. Come back.